Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Clint Russell of Liberty Lockdown. Love Clint Russell. Really appreciate him coming on. He preaches the Liberty content that I love so much, arguably better than anyone in 2023. I'm not exaggerating. I think Clint Russell is right at the top of the voices in the world of liberty right now. So I really appreciate Clint joining me for the episode today. Keep in mind, I am a health insurance broker. I do a lot of business, of course, here in the state of Kentucky, but I help people who are going on to Medicare, specifically in the state of Florida a lot, licensed in 13 states across the country, but a health insurance referral for me, someone who will be 65 soon would be great, or a business owner, someone in charge of the health insurance benefits for a business who needs help finding the best coverage uh, for themselves and their employees would also be a great referral for me, preferably in Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana, or the state of Florida. Really appreciate everyone tuning in. If you're a fan of The Kelly Patrick Show, I ask that you please send some referrals the way of my sponsors. The title sponsor of the show is Louisville Combat Academy, located at 7908 Beulah Church Road, Louisville, Kentucky, 40228. They have a great MMA program, but also, even if you aren't planning on fighting in the cage, they have a great jiu-jitsu program for adults, female-friendly classes, and a great kids program also. Check out Louisville Combat Academy. Heidi Solars Coots. Heidi is a licensed clinical social worker and licensed clinical alcohol and drug counselor, specializing in treating anxiety, depression, trauma, and addiction with a mindful and holistic approach. Heidi is actually my mother, and I can attest she is a saint. Call her at 502-457-1823. Virtual and telephonic appointments are available anywhere in the United States. Veercast Digital Media. Veercast Digital Media at veercast.com. Matt McCarthy runs Veercast, and he is also the producer for The Kelly Patrick Show. They do video production, aerial drone photography, web design, and podcast production. Contact them at info at veercast.com to start your own video show or podcast. Also, my health insurance practice, Benefits Analysis Corporation. Based in Troy, Ohio, I work from my Louisville, Kentucky office. I can help anyone in the United States with their health insurance needs. I'm an independent broker for health insurance solutions for individuals, families, Medicare-eligible individuals, and also groups. I can also write life insurance, and long-term care. If you want to support the podcast, please send me some referrals. 502-386-0978. Welcome to the Kelly Patrick Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. In today's episode, I am joined by Clint Russell of Liberty Lockdown Podcast. Clint is, at least for my money, or whatever, whatever verbiage I want to say when it comes to alternative media, specifically, you know, aligned with my beliefs, maybe an anarcho-capitalist type of lens. Uh, Clint is, as of February, almost March of 2023, I'd say close to the very top of the podcasting or alternative media uh, world. You know, you got Dave Smith, Tom Woods, I guess is up there, uh, but Clint- Okay. Malice is a good one. Malice is an interesting one, actually. I love him. Uh, I'm reading The White Pill right now, and I can go on and on about how how great Michael Malice is. Um, 
I agree. Uh, but as far as topically through a anarcho-capitalist mm. lens, I'd say, Clint, your show has really grown. You tell me, Clint. Welcome to the show. How much has your, your podcast grown recently? Well, a ton, man. Uh, you know, I tripled in my from my first to my second year, and I tripled again from my second to my third. So it's been, you know, very solid <laughs> increase in, in listeners and viewers. And uh, obviously the viewers have been a constant battle because I keep getting nuked or suspended from YouTube, which makes it very challenging to, to grow the video, uh, you know, version of my show. Uh, but I, because of my recent banning and the timing of it, uh, I was really gratified to see the groundswell of support. Uh, I posted, you know, my permanent suspension on Twitter and it got like, I don't even know over a thousand shares, half a million impressions. Um, people really, you know, freaked out <laughs> and it, uh, it made one of my episodes on rumble actually did like 15,000 views and I had just started it. So the fact that, you know, so many people are still rocking with me, like wherever I go, I think is beautiful and I'm super appreciative. Of course, Clint, I'm very familiar with your backstory, your introduction into your podcast and everything like that. But for the listeners of The Kelly Patrick Show who are not as familiar, Clint, you correct me where I'm wrong. You grew up with, I believe, if I, I remember correctly, your biological father has always been a libertarian-leaning guy. And yeah. from a young age, he kind of directed you in that direction. And uh, you always have been a libertarian, really, for at least most of your adult life, correct? Yeah. I mean, I've been a libertarian since I was a kid. I, I really believe that um, just because that's those are the lessons that my dad, who I only spent one weekend a month with, but he would tell me these lengthy stories and like they just stuck with me and they, it just felt it felt like the the right worldview to have. And, um, you know, my career was very successful with kind of the Austrian economics understanding of the world, uh, debt and finance and credit and all of these things that I feel like Austrians understand better than anybody. I was able to, you know, see the system for what it was and then work it essentially. And I, because of that, I was able to make a, a very significant living and, um, you know, was very fortunate to be able to retire in my mid to late thirties to shut down my mortgage company and start Liberty Lockdown and start to rail against all the insanity in the world. So, uh, yeah, I, I've been a libertarian forever, really. In a way, I would compare you maybe to Patrick Bet David. I think Patrick Bet David. Uh, found success financially in the world of insurance. Yep. And then he, you know, he had some great things to say. He loved interviewing people and he has really rose to prominence with his podcast, but it was I, and, funded and, similarly with yeah. as to you. What do you think of that comparison? No, well, I know. And he, and he also lives in Miami, which is the funny thing too. Uh, like I, I keep pinging the guy. I'm like, look, man, I am your people. Like, I know, I know I don't have uh, you know, millions of followers and listeners yet, but I'm telling you, you're going to love me. If we ever talk, you're going to love me. So, um, yeah, I think it'll happen eventually. I mean, I'm in his backyard and I couldn't agree more that we are, we're kindred spirits in that regard, like very, very similar paths. So I, I think the world of the guy, and I think he's a fantastic interviewer. I think he's got great business acumen. I think he's got a great understanding of the finance world and marketing and sales. And I, I, you know, I don't know if I'd put myself on his level, but I certainly have a, a similar skill set. So, um, yeah, big fan. So your success within the world of uh, the, the the mortgage industry um, coincided with you being able to retire, as you said, within your mid to late 30s. But that happened to be 
right around when shit really hit the fan with COVID, okay? We're not on YouTube right now, so we can say really whatever we want to. Um, But you were able to start your podcast, of course, Liberty Lockdown. I assume the the name Liberty Lockdown was prompted in part by the lockdowns. You're like, what the fuck's going on? Our country's getting locked down. You're like, I I need to talk about this. This is pretty fucking important. So it kind of uh, awakened a side of you within your Liberty-centric mind and gave you an outlet for that at a a perfect time. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. I mean, I started the show in May 2020, and that was only like a month, month and a half into lockdowns. I had been thinking about starting a show for, you know, years prior to that because I was such a huge fan of Dave Smith and I, I just like loved what he was doing. And I, I always thought that I could do something along those lines. And, um, the lockdowns were just the catalyst for me to finally take that leap. So Liberty lockdown alliteration rolls off the tongue pretty, <laughs> the, the timing of it obviously was, was good. And ultimately I don't feel like, uh, the titling is like so topical that it's going to go stale. It's like, yeah, our Liberty is still locked down Yeah, Maybe the lockdowns have ended, but come on. Let's let's be honest. We we haven't actually won by any stretch of the imagination. My story would be somewhat similar, except I, I did start a MMA or a regional combat sports podcast in 2017. So I had a platform already, and I still do, of course, MMA and you know boxing and jujitsu tournament type uh, centric episodes. But I also was like, holy shit! I was uh, re- pretty much a Republican prior to early 2020, right? And I had this moment of uh, awakening. It all kind of came together at the same time, also aided by, of course, Dave Smith and Robbie the Fire Bernstein, uh, you know, walking me through it. But I, I realized Donald Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp, which sounds great. Yeah. But even before COVID, I mean, we had went into so much debt. We had added so much debt to our our, um, our our country. And you referenced it earlier, but there's some simple really it's not that complicated simple principles that apply to personal finance and you can kind of i guess they trickle down that way or you can look at them from a national level also and they apply to running a country or a business or whatever it is and i realized donald trump said a lot of things that sounded appealing to someone like me but didn't always follow through on on those types of promises which is the same story of every politician in my entire life aside from ron paul i mean that's just the truth like Every politician that I've I've seen on the presidential stage my entire life has pretty much every single one of them has some sort of like anti-war campaign that they run on. They have some sort of smaller government, uh, especially on the conservative side. It's always smaller government. It's always, uh, you know, getting our our budget under control or our deficits under control our debt under control. And none of it fucking happens. And, and that's that's why, you know, I don't consider myself a conservative. That's also I mean. Even if they were to follow through with that, there's other reasons that I don't consider myself a conservative, but that's the reason I don't vote conservative because they don't fucking deliver on what they promise. And until they do, uh, I don't think anyone should be supporting these people yet. Yes, they are better oftentimes than the Democrats. Okay. But like, we're still headed in the wrong direction at a very rapid clip. And it's like, I want to turn this motherfucker around. Like I want to turn this, this bus around and you don't turn it around by slowing it down. (laughs) You have to turn it the fuck around and that's why I, I, I support the Libertarian Party, and that's why I almost always vote Libertarian, is because I think that that's what this world and this country need. Um, you know, people say, oh, you're wasting your vote. I'm like, okay, I fine. I don't give a fuck. Like, I am, I'm 
voicing, this is opposition. I am voicing my opposition to the current trajectory of things. I want to turn around. Can we do that? And, you know, hopefully more and more people will wake up. And if, if the Libertarian Party becomes enough of a threat, hopefully the conservatives will actually start to abide by the Bill of Rights and defend the Bill of Rights and defend the Constitution and defend uh, our financial stability and our economy and our way of life, our free market principles, all these things that they give lip service to, but they don't deliver on. So we have to put pressure on them, and I'm happy to do so. You touched on a couple things there that, that really resonated with me, but one of them <laughs> in particular was Republicans oftentimes preach Limited government, of course, guys like you and I, we hear that, we're, we're like naturally like, oh, that sounds great. Do they follow through on it? You know, fuck no, fuck no, <laughs> they don't. Simply they don't. At least the ones who win don't. Would Rand Paul, maybe, but he he's not going to win the presidency if we're being real. Um, Most likely not, yeah. Yeah, you, you also mentioned foreign policy, and that's one that, that here on my show, a lot of times I do uh, attract a little bit of a Republican uh, uh, listenership and this is a, a very contentious topic when it comes to me discussing which way I vote, what I support with my Republican friends. Even the guys who are in the military will say, yeah, I'm anti-war. But then you dig in a little deeper, and I mean, they're kind of just saying they're anti-war. That goes out the window the second something happens. They're like, well, I mean, I'm anti-war, but we got to do yeah. this. So, I mean, I know that's a, a broad topic, but how would you articulate uh, that stance from supporting Republicans, maybe less than Democrats, actually? Republican Party right now is maybe less war hawk-ish than the Democratic yeah, Party. Um, but still, I mean, how, how do you address someone who says they're anti-war, but they continue to vote for either Republicans or Democrats? Well, I, I think they don't take it seriously enough. Uh, I think that the the cost and consequences and bloodshed of our militarism have been felt abroad, but not so much domestically. And unfortunately, or fortunately, I mean, we are fortunate that that's been the case, but it's unfortunate in the sense that because we don't feel those consequences, because we don't see the body bags, you know, by the by the tens of thousands, uh, we just we don't really think about it. You know, it's like it's a thing that we know is happening, but we don't actually like feel it. And because I have a lot of military vet friends, because I, I grew up in San Diego, you know, I, I knew a lot of Marines that came back and they were like they were fucked up, man. Like they they paid a huge price emotionally and some of them physically. Um all of them mentally, like all of them. And I think it's because our wars are unjustified. And if they were justified, I don't think the, I mean, sure, it's still gruesome and I, I'm sure they would still pay some price. But I think that when you're paying that price and you realized it was for lies, it really hurts because these are like good people, man. They're fucking awesome people. And they go over there and they're like, I'm going to do my duty for my nation because I love this goddamn country. I love it. I'm willing to risk everything for it. And then they feel that they they realize over time that like why they're there was just whole cloth fiction and it breaks them and it breaks me. It breaks me to know what they've gone through and what they've been willing to sacrifice. And they did it for fucking nothing. They did it for, you know, a, a paycheck for some scumbag lobbyist and they did it for the the oligarchy that rules over us and the and the defense of the dollar reserve currency status globally is really what it's about. So, you know, I am. I think I'm one of the few people that, you know, when I talk about anti-war shit, like I am dead serious. <laughs> like I, I really don't want any more wars and I really don't want to see World War III and I really, really don't want to see fucking nuclear war. And we are 
as close as we have been in my lifetime. And I was born right into the teeth of the Cold War. And it is way, way more perilous right now. And no one's really facing it. So, you know, if if anything, I just would convey to them, like, there's no hatred in my heart towards the military. That's not what I'm doing here. There's love, actually. You know, I want you guys to be cared for and I want you to be kept safe unless you absolutely have to put your lives on the line. And there has not been a conflict in my lifetime that it was necessary for you to put your life on the line. And you have injured a lot of innocent people by doing things that you didn't need to be doing. And it's terrible. And it's created a a lot of people across the world that think that we're fucking tyrants and they're not wrong. They're not wrong to feel that way. If you, if you've spent your entire life in Afghanistan or Syria or Iraq, yeah, it's like, fuck, I would not be a fan of America either, you know? And I think that that's, that's how the world views us now because the American people have this disconnected perspective when it comes to militarism that they don't really pay attention to it. They, they, if at best they listen to the propaganda, they're indoctrinated when it matters most when they're trying to, you know, pass a war resolution or they're just trying to have enough public support so that they can justify some other undeclared bullshit, unconstitutional invasion of some other nation. That's really not our enemy. And, uh, and then by the time they realize what's what the truth was, it's too late. All the damage is done. The money's spent. The scumbags that that started it are paid off, and we all move on to the next crisis. And we never actually, you know, punish the people that fucking deceived us into absolute insanity, death and destruction for no fucking reason. So, I don't know. I I, I don't know if that was a good answer, but that's my honest one. No, a very good answer. I I think when the topic of being anti-war comes up, I, I get some different uh, different versions of pushback. I have a friend, a neighbor of mine. I think he's almost 80 years old, and he is a Vietnam veteran. And I thought, you know, might as well pick this guy's brain, ask him Hell some yeah, questions. Dude. If he's willing, you know, you yeah, never yeah, know. Yeah. If you ask him, my grandfather passed away many years ago. He was at the Battle of the Bulge. If I ever asked him about war, he'd, like, get pissed off. He's like a grumpy yeah. old man. He's like, I don't want to talk about that shit. He got a purple heart. He got shot, saw all his friends die. He didn't want to talk about it, but my neighbor... Yeah. Yeah, my, my grandpa was in Korea, same thing. He caught shrapnel from a grenade, and he was like, look, man, I don't want to talk about it, right? <laughs> and he's dead now, so I'll never be able to get those stories. How, how fascinating. So that, that, that's what prompted me to say, well, I've got this neighbor, super nice guy, doesn't seem to shy away from any topic. He's a Vietnam vet, tough as shit. And as I suspected, if I asked him about it, he was like, oh, yeah, let's talk. And he opened up. He was showing me these old pictures he has and all sorts of stuff. He was in Vietnam in 68 and 69 for about two years. And he was completely anti-war. I mean, it, it, he is. Um, he, he said the Vietnam conflict, we shouldn't have been involved, uh, you know, all that to a T. But where I got caught up with it, um, with him, was afterward, I tried to touch on like the Ukraine issue. Mm. And just to see what his thoughts are on it. If he's anti-war there, I assume that he should then be anti-war now. And he said he is adamant that we should not send troops to fight in that war, but he doesn't have any problem with us sending money. Hmm. And that, that was different. I mean, he's has arguably more wisdom than me. So I'm thinking, why well, there should be something to take from this. Yeah. Well, it, let me correct one thing. He's got more experience. I'm not sure he has more wisdom. Okay. Um, just in this, in this one regard. I mean, he, he may be, he may know a hell of a lot more about, you know, warfare than you and I, but, um, I, 
I think if he understood the backstory of Ukraine and Russia and that crisis, he would be probably less inclined to support what's occurring there. Uh, I've done an episode on my show. If anybody wants to check it out, it's called The War They Wanted. Uh, it's now back up on YouTube. Uh, you guys can just search that Liberty Lockdown, The War They Wanted. And it is a one hour synopsis of the history from basically 2014 till now, the Maidan revolution till now. And I, and I did my best to not convey my opinion so much in that episode, but just give video clips of American politicians and quotes from American, you know, diplomats throughout the past 30 years, expressing that the red line for Russia was the expansion of NATO to their border. That was their red line. They had been crystal fucking clear on it since 1991. They were like, no, you can't have NATO come up to our border. And the U.S. ignored them repeatedly for decades. That's what happened. Now, that's not to justify the invasion of Ukraine. It is to explain the logic, the rationale of this alleged madman who's behaving in an extraordinarily rational fashion, mind you. He is saying, I will not have a proxy nation that exists on one of my most vital borders to you know one of the most vital warm water ports that we have. That's what he's saying. And he's not wrong to say that. He's not wrong. He's not, he's not necessarily right to invade, but he's not wrong to say, I'm not going to allow you to control the political apparatus that exists in my neighboring state. It's the exact same argument that I would make if China or Russia was trying to install some sort of ruler in Mexico that was very favorable to those nations and very antagonistic towards our own. I would be like, well, that's crazy. Why would I want a neighbor who's fucking super antagonistic towards us when they don't need to be? And that's their perspective. And they're not wrong to feel that way. So I think that if he understood the history, the catalyst, the CIA involvement in the color revolutions that existed there, um, the fact that, you know, Lindsey Graham and John McCain are on the ground in 2018 saying the next year is going to be the war of or the year of uh, of offense. The fact that uh, the Ukrainian government was bombing uh, the Donbass region for six years or something like that, uh, killing thousands and thousands of innocent civilians in the, you know, the Russian speaking regions of Ukraine, the fact that Ukraine itself is divided largely by very nationalistic Ukrainian tendencies, as well as very, uh, you know, Russian speaking and Russian leaning nationalistic type of people. It's, it's a very complicated, messy situation. And in, in truth, my belief is that the country should have been divided. It would have been divided without a war or with only maybe the initial invasion, and then there would have been a peace settlement if the West hadn't once again intervened and said no. Because Zelensky and the the West had a peace negotiation that was already agreed to in principle with Putin. I believe it was March of last year, like right right at the beginning or right just just after the the initial invasion. And it was essentially dividing the nation up. It was saying that like Donbass and Crimea and a handful of other eastern uh, cities would become part of Russia and then the rest would remain Ukraine. And I think that that's the more reasonable compromise, that the Russian speakers who have had referendums, who have said that they want to be a part of Russia if they had their druthers, well, let them fucking go, man. I believe in personal, um, you know, what's the term? Basically just deciding what what government you want to rule over you. I believe in peaceful secession. So if these people feel that way, why should we from 6,000 miles away be not only dictating that you can't have this peace agreement, 
but also we're going to arm one side and we're going to say that we're going to push Russia all the way back, not just out of the Donbass region, but also out of Crimea. I mean, it is crazy. It is, it is an attempt to defang what, for whatever reason, the U.S. government believes to be this terrible threat to America, which isn't. Economically, they are a joke comparatively. The only way in which they are a true threat to our global hegemony is that they have more nuclear weapons and probably more advanced nuclear weapons than we do. And I don't want to fucking play with that fire. So <laughs> like, it, it just seems like the dumbest possible perspective is that, yeah, we're going to, sure, we're not going to send American blood over there, but we're going to send treasure over there in a proxy fashion that, that any rational observer would say, well, this is a war of NATO versus Russia. That's what this is. You have Germany and France and America all. Well, I mean, we're funding not just their fucking military, but we're also training them. We have special forces that have been on the ground that are training them for years prior to the invasion, mind you. Ye prior to the invasion, okay? Like, would we, be, would we be okay with that? If fucking the Russians were training the cartels in Mexico, would we be okay with that? Or would we say, oh, that like, they're trying to fuck with us? Like, we would invade and we would destroy the fuck out of them instantly. So like all of this is so complicated and it drives me crazy that this makes me sound like a Russian apologist or a Putin puppet or whatever the fuck. This is all real. Okay. This is the truth of what's transpired. And I think that most people just aren't willing to accept it because their goddamn TV won't tell them it. But if you actually do the research, it's the, it's the truth. If we assume some of the listeners to this episode are not familiar with the Rage Against the War Machine rally, could you tell them when was it, where was it, what was it? Yeah. Uh, it was last Sunday. It was in Washington, D.C., and it was a joint single-issue coalition between the People's Party, which is kind of like the Jimmy Dore, what I would describe as the good leftists, and the Libertarian Party, which are my, my people. Um, and it was like 12 incredible speakers, Kim Iverson, Ron Paul, uh, Daniel McAdams, Jimmy Dore, uh, Roger Waters uh, piped in. It, it was like lots of lots of incredible speakers. And then myself and Reed Coverdale uh, also were there and we were up on the you know symposium, but then we actually marched with all the people and we and he and I ended up speaking in front of the White House. And it was uh, very powerful. No, it wasn't really partisan in nature. It was just like, look, we're we don't want to see world war. And that's what we're here for. So we showed up and showed out. There was like 4,000 people that showed up. And of course, the media gave it very little coverage. Or if they did cover it, it was just enough to say, look at all these lunatics that love Russia, that love Putin. It's like, couldn't be further from the truth. I think Putin's a tyrant and I certainly wouldn't want him ruling over me. Um, but I don't want war with him. And I don't, I don't think that we need to go that path. So that's what it was. I believe it was the largest anti-war rally in, what was it, 17 years or something along those lines? Yeah, since 2006. Um, so, well, you know, you may say 4,000 isn't a lot. Uh, I thought it was three to 5,000. I, I lean towards three. Some people say four to five, so whatever. It was a good, it was a good turnout. There was a lot of people there. Um, yeah, it, it's uh, all the activists that were there that are, you know, longtime anti-war marchers and protesters they all, all were telling me like look i've been doing this for a very long time uh, i haven't seen anything like this since 2006 so i was thrilled man because like i i genuinely believe like this is the most dangerous time when it comes to 
uh, the potential for World War III in my lifetime. And thank God that there was some people that, that feel similarly. My wife loves Pink Floyd. Nice. How was how was Roger Waters? Was he is he that that good on on being anti-war? No, he's great actually. But um, he was the only one. All those other people I, I named were actually live speakers. He for whatever reason he wasn't able to to make it. So they he did uh, like a Zoom call in to us. So, uh, but yeah, his his talk was good. I mean, because I've been you know following this stuff very closely for years now. Uh, I don't I don't think I heard anything I didn't know per se. Um, but I think it was probably revelatory for a lot of people in the crowd there that were like not as well researched on what I just basically broke down for you when it came to Ukraine and Russia. So, uh, oh, by the way, I should mention while I have a chance, I will be debating Destiny, who's one of the the biggest internet YouTube debaters, um, probably probably in the world, on the Russia Ukraine crisis in uh, what's it like just outside of Nashville in Tennessee. Uh, you can go to takehumanactiontour.com to pick up tickets. I just wanted to let your audience know that. Uh, but that'll be a live event at some with like thousands of college kids. And I've never even done a live debate. So it's going to be really challenging and interesting. But uh, I believe like I have I have peace on my side. So if I lose that one, I really fucked up. <laughs> so Destiny is, of course, going to be calling you a, a Putin apologist. She's going to be saying we need to protect the peace. She's going to say what Mitch McConnell would say. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's, uh, uh, I mean, he's taking, he's taking the affirmative that we should be, you know, funding and arming the Ukrainians to the end of the earth. So that's, I, I assume he's going to have to have some angle on it that, that makes it just, and I have no idea what angle he'll take, but, uh, I'm prepared for anything. I, I, I genuinely believe that like, I just have the truth on my side here. So like, I just can't lose it. I recently listened to one of your episodes that you had you and Dave, there was a few people, but you and Dave Smith and Jimmy Dore were all talking about various different topics. I'm a health insurance broker, actually licensed in Florida, if anyone's listening and knows nice. someone who's going on to Medicare or needs help with group health insurance or any health insurance, send them my way. Um, but you, you guys discussed many topics. One of them that was very interesting was actually healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I mean, I found it to be very fascinating. I think you and Dave did a, a great job of, of it's a delicate balancing act because you want to get along with someone like Jimmy Dore because he's so great on so many issues. He really is, yeah. Um, but he's but he's not good on that one. <laughs> he's not so good on that one, and it doesn't even sound like he's real confident on uh, in some of the ways because he kind of says. Well, I mean, the Nordic countries are doing it, so it must work. Or, you know, it's basically like, I, I don't know the details, but I think some magical way we can work it out type thing. So what would a summary be of the libertarian stance versus the good, as you guys continually say, and I think Dave may have coined it, but I don't know, the good leftists, which I would say Jimmy Dore is. But what would your summary be of that, the, the, the privatized healthcare versus the Medicare for all crowd? Yeah, well, I, I think that, you know, Jimmy's perspective is that, well, we, we waste all these hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars on empire. Why can't we take care of our people? And, you know, I like just on pure sentiment alone, I agree with him, of course. Like, yeah, I would, if I could just take our military industrial complex budget and just bring it home domestically and just funnel it to the people, that'd be great. I'd be all for it, you know, like, but the reality is, is that it won't happen. <laughs> First off, it won't happen. Um, but two, 
that that money we don't actually have where it's just borrowed and it's debt and it's like we're so we would be borrowing and we would be taking out loans nationally and then just deploying you know printed money or or borrowed money to you know alleviate these issues but it's only a temporary issue if you understand Austrian economics it will ultimately create inflation so that's not an answer then also um you know I find it fascinating because door is someone who who was vax injured uh, according to him and he was vax injured based off of a mandated medical treatment that was untested and unproven and ultimately inefficacious and ultimately dangerous and it was done so under the pretext of the government knowing best and also having the power to force us to do things against our will and he was hurt by that so he then wants to turn around and say the government will now be responsible for funding all healthcare to which i say to jimmy you have already been proven that these people are fucking evil <laughs> and not just evil but owned they're owned deeply to their cores so why would you entrust them with this and he's like look i'm not entrusting them with anything i just want them to pay for it i still want to have my doctor and i just want them to pay for it i'm like jimmy unless you're the one paying you're not the customer okay if the money comes from the government, the government is the customer. The government will dictate what treatment you want and what treatment you get and what treatment you must have. That's what we learned from the COVID period. That is what national health care would be and probably will be eventually. So I don't know how to I don't know how to fucking get through to these people. I don't know how to convey it to them any more explicitly than that. I am steadfast in it. Him and my other buddy, Craig Pasta Jardula. Another, you know, left-leaning libertarian. They just, they just, they fucking can't hear it, man. They just can't hear it. They like, they can't wrap their minds around the perspective that, like, a, a truly free market in healthcare, which we are nowhere near, not even close to, that would actually bring down costs, and that would actually improve treatment, and that would actually do all of the things that they want to see in the world. The only thing it wouldn't accomplish is giving care to those that truly can't afford it. To which I say to them, bleeding heart liberals, open up your goddamn wallets and help these people and stop relying on the government to do it for you. And I think that's the compromise position. They don't see it as such, and we will never have a meeting on the minds uh, with this particular issue. I've that's okay. I still love them. <laughs> um, you love them more than people who vote Democrat or even Republican in many ways, right? I do. I do, because I think... To me, the most important thing is is being anti-war right now, and they are that. So I view them as allies. You know, a lot of libertarians don't because they, they view economics as the most important thing. And, well, you know, my background is finance, and I think that economics is tremendously important. Uh, and ultimately, obviously, if you were to end central banking, then that would probably deal with the the empire and the militarism so like yeah i think at its at its root this is a finance issue too it's an economics one but because we don't have the power to get rid of central banking well then i'm going to use triage and say what's the most imminent threat right now world war three nuclear war we have to come together on that that's why i view them as allies i've heard ron paul articulate the Solution, and it's really by him referencing, I think, back when he got started, maybe in the 60s in Texas, where he said the poor people would go to a church-based hospital, and the church, the, the, the community really would come together, and they would take care of the poor people and their health care needs. I know that may not resonate with some 
atheist or agnostic left leaning people they're like oh we need the church involved so they're you know they don't like that but but yeah. i do think there's something to that because that's done on a voluntary basis and people People do like to help when they're able. I, I think of it's the, the voluntary aspect that is appealing to me. And I think if, if taken to that point, many, many others would realize that that's more appealing than some monopoly that fucks everything up. Yeah. Well, the irony, the great irony in this is that they go, oh, the church, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to have religion involved in healthcare. It's like, bitch, you are more religious when it comes to healthcare than anybody else, your, your fervor for the state exceeds most devout Christians. I know <laughs> that's just the truth. They turn to, they turn to the state for everything, every problem that they have in their lives. They go, Oh, government fix. I don't ever do that. And I don't actually turn to the church either. I'm agnostic. I don't have a you know real devout bone in my body, but if I have to choose damn right, I'm going to choose the church. The church is way better. <laughs> it's it's way closer to the people. It's way smaller. You have parishioners that are involved that you know can actually deal with the budgeting and the deployment of resources to the people in the local community. It's not to say that there aren't some downsides. Of course there are. There's downsides with any uh, you know institution. But I think that the smaller it is, the better it is. And and that's to me is just a no brainer. That's a better way to do it. And if you look at the the amount of uh, you know. Just medical costs that we're we're talking about when it comes to like the Ron Paul era where he was doing all this charity work. He's like, look, I was paid, I was getting paid, you know, fifty bucks for a birth. <laughs> you know, like like it was it was nothing back then. And part of it's inflation, but also part of it is the need for tort reform and the the litigation that exists within the medical uh, arena. It's the insurance middlemen that that collect their fees. It's the the regulatory bodies that uh, what's the it's the term. It's like use, need, licensing, or whatever the I can't remember the term. But um, there's, I mean, there's just a litany of of regulatory issues and government involvement. Not to mention Medicare and Medicaid and all the the payment shenanigans and the the constant chasing of the dollars and the amount of money that gets burnt up just trying to get paid for your services. I mean, there's so many aspects of this and so much waste and graft and just garbage that exists within the the medical health establishment um, because of the government and like it's not to say it's all the government's fault but it's a lot <laughs> it's like 90 plus percent in my opinion so i think that we should be coming together to focus on that and stop turning towards the government and saying please fix the thing that you broke I like to try to position many of my political episodes as being directed toward my republican friends who are tuning in so in sure. their eyes, if they've never heard from you before, Clint, I want to uh, <coughs> talk to them a little bit. Uh, I heard you describe in a recent episode, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe the topic of the 2020 election being rigged. You know, my, my father is a Make America Great Again Donald Trump supporter. He's 100% convinced the election was stolen. Yep. Okay. And... I don't know. It may have been. I, I really don't know. But I think I heard you articulate it pretty well. And I want to make sure I've got this straight. If I remember correctly, you said, I don't know for sure the day of the elections exactly went down, uh, exactly what went down. But I do know, we do know that, you know, uh, uh, Facebook and Twitter, it's been documented. They've come out in 100% certainty. They were censoring specific stories. For example, the Hunter Biden laptop uh, issue. And that, 
I don't know if that's ballot harvesting or what. That's not quite the same as whatever description some people may have as fixing or rigging an election. But that certainly impacted the results in 2020. Was my description uh, accurate with what you feel, Clint? Yeah, I, I think that's more or less it. And I would just add that, um, you know, the what we're describing is really a psychological operation and and uh, controlling of minds. Uh, I know that sounds crazy to say it, but like that's what it really was. Like if they if there's this bombshell story that comes out a week before a national election for president, and it is absolutely damning for one of the candidates, and not just not just the political class comes out and says it's a lie because you have all these CIA or former CIA officials on all these fucking lying scumbags that come out and they say this story's bunk. It has all the hallmarks of Russian infor- uh, you know, disinformation. Liars. Liars. They should all be in prison. So you have that. And then on top of that, you have direct line of communication from government organizations to quote-unquote private businesses that are saying you cannot ha- allow this story to propagate. You cannot not allow these narratives to propagate. Ivermectin and early treatment and you know any any sort of opposition to lockdowns. They start to roll out protocols in terms of service that say you can't talk about this stuff. All shit that was true and correct and moral and just and they say fuck you, you can't say it. Unconstitutional, violation of the first amendment, crystal clear. You cannot do that. You cannot have the government dictating to private businesses what we're allowed to say. That is a that's a cutout that's using private businesses to dictate speech. That's illegal. The people involved should be imprisoned. So you have that. <laughs> Sorry, I get really passionate about this one. And then you have just the broader narrative of <clears throat> Russian collusion between Trump and Russia, which was another whole cloth deep state fiction that didn't happen, that it was used for two purposes. One, so that they can then basically mold the American mind into thinking that once again, Russia is our enemy when no one had been thinking about Russia as being our enemy for the past 20 years since the USSR fell. But all of a sudden you have the Democrats, the alleged anti-war people who are bloodthirsty and out of their goddamn minds wanting to nuke, you know, <laughs> Moscow. Like they, they totally fucked these people's brains up with complete lies. And it was created by Hillary Clinton and her campaign. And it was then covered up by the FBI and the CIA, and they were all in on it. So like, yeah, who gives a shit about the day of the election? They fucked with the American people's brains for five straight years, and they got them to think that Trump was a Russian asset when he wasn't, and then they got them to think that the story about Hunter Biden being a fucking scumbag crackhead who was making millions of dollars for him and his bullshit scumbag crackhead family that it was actually Russian disinformation when it was true. So who cares about the day of the election? They fucked us up for fucking five years prior. That's my point. I think that the Republicans are wasting their goddamn time talking about the day of the election when they ought to be focusing on the fact that your government has turned against you. It is propagandizing all of you to think insane, false shit all the time. So... We're never going to have a fair election unless you deal with that, unless you fucking make it once again illegal for the American government to propagandize the American people. Well, then you're going to have manipulated, contrived elections forevermore. I love it. I knew, I knew that was, a, I guess you could say, a softball for you, Clint. That's a, 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 a topic you're pretty passionate about, I'd say. I am. It's because it matters, man. You know, like 
even though I'm not a fan of democracy, like if you don't have the ability to peacefully, you know, reconfigure your government, well, then you end up with violence and I don't want violence. So yeah, like, I think it's really important that we come together on this issue and say like, we know what you did and it was illegal and you're all going to jail. <laughs> like, and I feel like I'm the only one saying it and it just drives me up the wall that that's not a, like a universal cry. Same with Fauci, same with the lockdowns, everybody involved, prison, everybody. So, like, unless that happens, I don't see how we, you know, right the ship. I don't, I don't, I don't see it. For the record, I plan on voting for, I assume it'll be Dave Smith, and I know that he will not win the presidential election in 2024, but I am proud to say I will not vote Republican. I guess if it was Thomas Massey and Rand Paul, somehow they were the two. I'd, I'd vote for them. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You would. Yeah. I I think I would too. Um, I, I don't see that happening. It's not very popular. That's not a popular no, no. stance. No, they, they will. I mean, in the primaries, I'll vote for them for sure. But like the, the odds of them actually getting the nomination for the Republican is virtually zero. As far as I'm concerned, it's going to be a DeSantis versus Trump showdown. And, you know, Trump disappointed the hell out of me. DeSantis scares the hell out of me. Obviously, I, I migrated from California to Florida, so I like the guy for as a governor. His um, his authenticity when it comes to you know the national level and and the geopolitical questions that matter most to me. Like I don't know his stance. Like I I need him on record the way Trump has been over the past week, where he's just going like I am going to get rid of all of the like Trump came out with a phenomenal two minute talk last week that I like, it was the best thing he said since he got kicked out of office or, or cooed out of office, whatever, however you want to look at it. Um, he was like, he's like, we need to get rid of all the warmongers and the scumbags out of the, you know, military industrial complex and the deep state. And we have to just, just purge them all. I was like, preach brother. If only you had been president for four years, so you could have fucking done it. (laughs) like like that's the thing about trump that just drives me insane it's like rhetoric wise that dude kicks ass he's like the media lies to you and the military industrial complex controls you and the medical establishment is full of shit and you know fauci's a scumbag and it's like all these things that i agree with and then when it comes to action he doesn't do a goddamn thing so um you know i who knows if i would vote for him i i I, like i would probably prefer him over desantis because i think that that trump is at this point more evidently uh, committed to not having a hot war with Russia. And that matters to me more than anything on earth. So yeah, I would probably support the guy, but not like loudly, (laughs) you know, you would rather he be president than let's say Joe Biden or Kamala Harris or even Ron DeSantis specifically because of his wrecking ball approach i've heard you say which is a good thing in some ways uh, but yeah. also his anti-war stance or at least humoring the the good stances on on foreign policy it's, it's really that simple because the guy sucked uh, on the economy sucked on the money printing he sucked on the debt um he allowed for the lockdowns even though people always blame the governors it's like he was the president man come on that shit was all unconstitutional so he should have intervened he should have at least gave lip service to how immoral and unconstitutional it was it could have galvanized his base he could have said hey peaceful disobedience we're not doing this we're not allowing these lunatics to shut down your churches go to church i will pardon any single person that gets arrested for going to church during a pandemic these people are out of their minds 
This is not constitutional. I will do everything in my power to defend you guys. And he didn't do any of that. So, you know, but, but World War Three, man, <laughs> like it's just triage. I'm like, look, I don't trust him, but it, he's the best rhetorically on Russia. That's what matters most to me. Obviously, if Dave Smith had a chance at being president, like I'm casting my vote for him 1000 times out of 1000. Um, but I don't even know if Dave's going to run. We'll find out. And I also, I mean, odds of him actually being in a position to win are, are pretty low. So we'll see. You know, I, if if Dave does run, though, I'll be on his campaign trail doing whatever he needs. I, I love the guy and I think the world of him. And I think that he's, you know, one of the greatest messengers ever for libertarianism. So we'll see what happens. If you had to make a, a I'm putting you on the spot here, a Mount Rushmore of messaging for libertarian ideology in the, the modern sense, I guess, Mises or Rothbard could count too. But for your brand of anarcho-capitalist libertarian thought, um, who, who would come to mind as far as messaging goes? Because it's very important. I mean, especially in today's uh, day and age of alternative media, you get onto a certain podcast, how many people see you? You've been on Tim Pool a lot lately. I mean, that's your, you're honestly, before you even answer, you're turning into one of them. You, 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 at least right now, you deserve to be in the yeah. conversation. But who to I'm, you is, is in that conversation? Yeah, I, I mean, the guys that I think uh, voice our opinions most eloquently, uh, I would have to put Tom Woods up there, uh, Malice, Dave Smith. Even though Malice isn't like, he doesn't really go into the anarcho-capitalism specifically. Like, he's just an anarchist in my in my estimation. Like, I think he probably values capitalism, and I think he probably is an anarcho-capitalist. But, like, when he talks about it, he doesn't talk about it how Dave and I do. So, like, Dave for me is whatever the biggest president on the Mount Rushmore is for sure. Um, then Tom and Malice and uh, who would be for? I'm certainly not putting myself up there long. I, I haven't been doing it long enough. And I, you may be up there. I'll say you may be up there as far as for well, uh, right now, because I mean, we haven't even touched just not a, on There's it. just not a lot of us too. Yeah. That helps. <laughs> How big has it been for you lately getting on the, the Tim pool uh, uh, program repeatedly. How big of a deal has that been for you and your uh, listenership and viewership? I mean, uh, it's it's been good. Obviously, it, uh, every time you do a big platform like that, it helps a lot. Um, you know, I'm I'm about to hit seventy three thousand followers on Twitter, which is pretty significant. And uh, you know, I do usually like twenty thousand, fifteen to twenty thousand uh, listeners per episode, which for a libertarian dedicated show is pretty damn good. So. I, um, you know, I'm very appreciative for where I'm at. And, and I think that every time I, I get an opportunity to, to go on a big platform and, and speak to hundreds of thousands of people that may have never heard our ideas or, or if they have, they've only heard them from Dave the few times he's been on, you know, either Rogan or, or Tim pool or something like that. Um, I, I just feel so blessed. I like the, I think that like the inspiration for doing what I do was, this this flame that you know obviously I had from a kid uh, as a kid, but it was really lit in me in the Ron Paul Revolution era, where I was like, all right, these ideas have appealed to the masses in a way that I didn't expect, and and once I saw that, I was just like, my job moving forward in my personal life, business life, whatever, family life is to like keep that flame going, and the fact that I'm like now looked at by a lot of people as being one of those guys that's doing that is just 
I feel, I mean, I don't make a lot of money from podcasting, but goddamn, does that feel good? <laughs> like that, that to me is the the greatest satisfaction I get from, from doing what I do is that I get to carry on my hero's legacy. Cause like, that's who he is. He's my hero. I have three kids. They're all teenagers, 16, 14, and 13. Uh, my son, I don't have a problem talking to him about politics. He seems to agree with me on a lot of stuff. Um, He's 13. My, my stepdaughter is 16. She escaped from Cuba, so she has a different perspective. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but my daughter... Super anti-communist. I love super it. Super <laughs> anti-communist. That's not a bad yeah. thing, actually. That was no. in, in my notes for talking to you, because some people do shy away from that. I'll get to that in a minute, actually. But my, my daughter, my biological daughter is 14. She goes to a, here in Louisville, Kentucky, a predominantly left-leaning school. And so when I talk to her about some of these issues, she tries to tell me, Dad, I love you, but we'd all be better off if you didn't talk as much about politics, <laughs> that type of stuff. <laughs> she loves me. I love her. She's my angel. You know, I mean, she's the best. But I have tried to articulate to her, and I think you will have strong opinions on this, the importance of articulating your opinions and letting people know your opinions. I'm an anarcho-capitalist, and I'm not a piece of shit. Okay. So <laughs> if anyone, and I'm not saying I'm the greatest guy in the world or anything like that, but I do think it's important to let the people that you know, see a accurate representation of a good person in society who holds these views. Absolutely. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? No, dude, it's super important, man. It's super important. It, this is why I have never bought into the line of like, even at, like get togethers with family or whatever, like holidays, you know, no religion, no politics. I'm like, get the fuck out of here with that. Like, those are the things that are most interesting to talk about. I'm not going to talk about them with my family. Like you out of your mind. Um, that doesn't mean you don't be kind. Like, it doesn't mean that you like go in there like you're Bill O'Reilly trying to tear off some stupid liberals head. You just go in there like, yeah, I have my positions and I, and I'm, I'm well read and well researched and well founded and principled and like, if you want to, if you want to go to war, we can, but like, I'm just here to hang out and I love you guys. And, <laughs> but yeah, I, I think that your, your point about, you know, just demonstrating that like we walk amongst you, <laughs> we walk amongst you and we're not dangerous and we're actually very kind and we're very intelligent and we're not crazy. Like, that's great. Especially, you know, someone who's got like a, your father with three kids, like that's beautiful. Um, so yeah, let people know, let, let people know that, that we're out there whatever your political walk of life. I think that like, that's been a huge problem. Even if you're just a conservative, like so many conservatives have been cowed into silence about everything they believe in. Cause um, you know, the media and the political establishment has done such a great job of creating this narrative that you're like some racist inbred asshole. And I know you're not. So like talk, <laughs> let, let people know that you're not, don't let them set the narrative, like fuck these people. So I don't know. Maybe I'm just an asshole and I obstinate, but I think it's important that we tell we tell our truth all the time. Like what what we're dealing with is just so much deception and propaganda and bullshit. It's like, well, if you have any opportunity to counterbalance that, do it, please. I need your help. So, like, I tell my audience that all the time. I'm like, speak out, be be honest. Um, don't don't let the liars control the narrative, please. That is one of the reasons I'm drawn to you. Clint, and this touches on many different topics, but I have heard you interview people who are suggesting they're not Holocaust deniers. They're not, but they're questioning, you know, the communists who came in, they, they, uh, 
found all these concentration camps after World War II. They gave us their version of what happened, and now we're supposed to accept that as being the fucking Bible. I mean, that's just true based on what who? Uh, uh, Khrushchev or, or not, not Khrushchev, I guess, yes, Stalin and their people. I mean, Probably that's who, Stalin, yeah. yeah, Stalin. That's who, that's who we're supposed to believe their exact version of everything. Now, I, I, I want to be clear. I've never heard you suggest that the Holocaust didn't occur or anything remotely close to that. But just no. having the fucking balls to even discuss something that could be perceived is being so controversial, I think, is is admirable. And I think it's the way you got to be. I mean, do you want to walk through your life being a pussy who's just like, no, I I fear people calling me a, a racist, so I won't even talk about that topic. Right, right, right. No, I, I couldn't agree more, man. And I think this is why I get along with, you know, MMA guys so much. Uh, you know, Jake Shields has become a friend of mine recently, and it's bizarre because I was such a huge fan of his and watched him fight for like 15 years. And then I'm like hanging out with him at Skanks Fest in Vegas and we're just like shooting the shit. And I'm like, you're like my guy, you know, <laughs> it's just, just so bizarre. My life is so strange. But anyways, point being is that like, I like fighters, man. I like fucking people who like are not bitches. <laughs> so I just vibe with fighters and, and I vibe with fighters that aren't street fighters and aren't cage fighters and aren't octagon fighters. I just like fighters. I like people who fight for themselves and fight for their families and fight for their principles and fight for the things they care about. Like I don't, we have too much cowardice. We have so much fucking cowardice. And I just want to like, not just be around more courageous type of people, but I also want to lift up those people. I want to like, I want to see more of that in the world. And I want people to know that you don't have to live like a fucking bitch. So <laughs> that's my, that's why. There's many different ways this applies to uh, political conversation in recent years, but let's say Black Lives Matter, for example. For years, we've been told you either support Black Lives Matter and you're an ally of the cause or you're a piece of shit racist. So which one are exactly. you? And, yeah. and to, to come out and say, no, I think Black Lives Matter is a, a very corrupt, violent Marxist organization that doesn't actually do anything to help black people in our country. So I'm not right. going to fucking pretend that I think it's good. I think exactly. that would be a disservice to my African-American friends. And, and that's not what I'm going to support. When I start saying shit like this, though, it's, it does scare my 14-year-old da <laughs> daughter. She's like, dad, let's just not talk about that. And I get it. She's 14. But I do right. think it's an important thing. You know, if I dropped dead in a couple of years, I want my daughter to remember he, my, my dad wasn't a coward who would just go along with the narrative because he was told that's his only option. I know I'm beating yes. a dead horse here, but I think there's a lot of different ways this can be applied to alternative media and to even people who don't have a podcast, don't really have a voice, but just who stand up for what they believe in. Well, I think it's even more important for the people that don't have a podcast or a voice. Like it's the, it's the every man that, that chooses to live courageously that will actually save us myself and Dave and Tom or and yourself or anybody that's speaking into a microphone that that reaches tens of thousands of people, well, if we're just saying courageous shit, but then you're still living in a cowardly fashion, I'm not changing the world. It's up to it's up to all of us collectively to actually live with courage and and reinstill some uh you know values in the truth. Like that the the truth matters again and courage matters again and being masculine matters. And like it's not enough for the commentators to do it. Everybody else has to. So, yeah, I believe me. I <laughs> I want to see as many people as possible telling their truth not just to their kids, which is super important and 
huge kudos to you because I think the children in particular will like that lesson will live with them forever. You know, as you said, if you were to drop dead tomorrow, they like, even if they, they never come around to your worldview, like your way of seeking truth and telling truth when it's unpopular, that will stick with them and that will reformulate who they are forever. And, and the more we can have people like that, that think like that, then the less power the government has over us to propagandize us because they will be immune to it. So super important, man. So many people in the United States, I think, would say communist Russia, they were big on propaganda. Nazi Germany, propaganda, man, it's sure. powerful. But then you say to them, you, you realize we are propagandized from a very, <laughs> a very fucking early age here in the United States too, right? And they'll look at you like, what? What? What do you mean? I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, it's difficult to get over that barrier when, when we are taught from a young age to worship the military at all costs in so many different uh, uh, versions of propaganda. We're arguably the best country in the history of humanity, I would say, when it comes to propagandizing our people because we're the the one who's you know. I mean, we control most of the world right now. So, I mean, are you kidding me? It it exists here and it's been here for a long fucking time. Yeah. Well, I would argue it's been here longer than you and I have been alive. Um, as long as public education has and its curriculum has been set by the government, they have been able to indoctrinate us, you know, probably better than our parents. So it's super powerful. And then you add on top of that, say, say you believe, and I think that it's fair to, to argue that the Nazis and the communists of the early 19 and mid 1900s were more evil than the people that rule over us today. You're like that, that's a fair argument to make it. Some people might disagree, but I'll just, just assert it. Well, they didn't have the fucking tools that this government does. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have control over the, all of the thousands of TV shows that are out there. Like they're, they're able to dictate so much, um, an algorithmic manipulation of, of search results, uh, AI and, you know, all, all sorts of manipulation that's happening on that front. Uh, censorship tools that we can't even really like wrap our heads around the fact that they can now chip you and force treatment into you. And uh, like, this is all, this is all, you know, advents of a new era. So I think that in many regards, we are the most propagandized and most controlled without knowing it, which is probably the most dangerous part people to ever have lived. And uh, I don't say that lightly. It is an interesting topic. I didn't even plan on touching on this, but that's the beauty of podcasting. But we watch a show like, um, what is it? There was something about the Cold War. Um, I forget. Some some show, I've watched many shows about uh, Russia and Russian spies and all that um, uh, recently. And we, we look back on those years and we say, God, that's scary. After the fall of communism, they like found all these documented uh, cases of surveillance. And they're like, God, those people had to live in fear that they were being you know, there was surveillance back then and golly, that must have been horrible. And my God, what a horrible way to live. And, and, and I think it's, it's, it's difficult to have the perspective of saying, uh, that's fucking happening right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and it's so fucking obvious that it is, but it's like, you can't really, I don't know what the, the words are that I'm trying to, 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 to say right now, but it's, it's, it's here. It's just, you, it's difficult to say that we're here when you're not looking at it in hindsight. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that the truth is, is like the tools are better. The, the force has been diminished, but the coercion has been increased. So like you don't actually know 
how controlled you are. Like you, because in, in the past it'd be like, okay, gulag for you. And now it's like digital gulag for you. You know, like you, you can no longer convey your messages to your friends because we have algo de-boosted you so that you're just speaking into the wilderness, even though you have tens of thousands of followers, only a couple hundred of them are actually seeing it. Um, you don't even know, you don't know how silenced you've become. So there's a, a lot of examples like that, a lot. And, and then there's also the, the chilling effect that comes from the, the kind of cultural Marxism aspects of our civilization that are rarely discussed. And I know you wanted to talk about it too, is that we now have, you know, struggle sessions and we have cancel mobs and we have, um, you know, litmus tests politically when it comes to basically every form of employment in this country. You know, if you want to work for a Fortune 500 company, like good luck being a radical libertarian or an outspoken conservative, even like it's going to be tough. <laughs> it's going to be harder than you would you would probably think, because the HR people are all devout fucking Marxists and they don't they view you as like a, an existential threat to their existence. Um, uh, good luck going into some major uh, you know, corporate board and sitting down and saying, I don't think that anthropogenic gl global climate change is actually a threat to humanity. Like good luck saying that and keeping your job. Like it doesn't, it's not like, it's not like there aren't scientists that don't agree with you, but because the narrative has been structured in a, in a way that if you were to disagree your persona non grata, well, you can't have that opinion. Does that opinion affect your capacity to do the job? Fuck. No, it doesn't. Does it make you bad at, at your, at what you're actually attempting to accomplish? No, it doesn't. But that's that's the type of um, cultural Marxism type of thing that I'm talking about is like there it's not just an, it's not about meritocracy. It's not about your effort or how good you are at your job anymore. It's about your your worldview. Do you do you vibe with the fucking Borg? Like, are you <laughs> are you in alignment with the cult? And if you're not, well, then your life is going to be a lot harder. And that's how that is how they control you more than anything is that they get you to shut up and or or even worse lie just to get by and and i refuse to do either you certainly do a, a few of your recent guests have been jesse kelly james Lindsay, robert spencer and many others but i chose those three in particular because they don't shy away nor do you from using terms such as cultural marxism I do think some people, when it comes to having conversations like this, they shy away from saying stuff that will get them flagged as a conspiracy theorist, that type of stuff. If you call everyone Marxist, you know, so people on the left, a lot of times they put up their, their, um, you know, their spidey senses are going off like this guy's a nut, but you don't shy away from it. And I like it. And I, I can tell you, my wife also uh, appreciates people who are not pussies and, and don't shy away from, <laughs> from using terms like that. So on behalf of my well, wife, that's, Yanni, that's why she married you. <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I, I would like to think so. But uh, why is that important to you? And of course, every cultural or every Marxist revolution is a little different. You know, you have exactly. uh, 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 Vietnam, of course, or, you know, uh, Cuba or Russia or any of them. They're all different. So learning about the differences between them is always fascinating. Uh, China, my God. Um, yeah. but it goes it's on and on. So I, I guess it would be a modern version and you used the term earlier, but why do you not shy away from using terms such as cultural Marxism or even just Marxism? Well, because I think it's the most apt description and I'm not going to change my language just to, you know, get by with people that are probably my enemies anyways. Um, but the, the, you know, the main reason that I've, I've used it more and more is because I've really been influenced by James Lindsay's work as he's, you know, detailed the, 
academic work that has gone into like Gramsci and and the the indoctrination centers and how they've set the curriculum based off of these you know devoutly Marxist beliefs, but they've masked them in these divide and conquer tactics using identitarianism, whether it be race or religion or sex or or sexuality or anything like that. So I think that's what we're up against. That's the reason I say it so often is because I think that's actually what we're facing. And uh, I actually had an opportunity to face real Marxists last Sunday and sit down with them and have them question me on why I use terms like cultural Marxism, because they say that doesn't exist. And I, and I was very concerned. I actually fucking floored them because they were like, they didn't expect me to have a rejoinder. They expected me to just be some mouth breathing conservative that throws out that term and has no fucking concept of what Marxism actually is. And, and I said, I, I have a feeling I understand why you guys oppose me using that term. Would you mind if I explain? And they said, sure. And I said, well, it's because under Marxism, it's usually a, a, your, your worldview is that it's a divide amongst class. And my argument is that Marxism is ultimately um, about evolving any tactical mechanism to destroy the system so that you can then recreate your worldview in its, in its stead, in its place. And my belief is that the Marxists of not just today, but yesteryear have realized that class doesn't work so well. And ultimately many of the Marxists are at the upper echelons of the class, uh, you know, regime. So like that doesn't benefit them either. But they have found that what is what much more efficacious is identitarianism and pointing out racism um, and sexism and homophobia and transphobia. And I think that your your tactics have evolved from the political into the cultural. And that's why I call it that. And they all looked at me and they're like, oh, fuck, he's on to us. You know, like, <laughs> like I, I think that I think that I really stunned them with that. They're like. And I hope I gave them something to chew on and think about, like, maybe, maybe he's right. Maybe like our art, like, even if these people haven't bought into that, maybe their movement has been, um, you know, supplanted with it. And I think, I think, you know, not just I'm right. I think James Lindsay's right. I think that's that he's right. That like, that's what they've done. They have evolved Marxism into this new iteration of itself, but it's still the general, you know, divide and conquer type tactics and struggle sessions and, and canceling people and it'll ultimately probably end in you know mass genocide and i i want nothing to do with it particularly given that you know people like you and i are listed at the at the upper end of the the hierarchy when it comes to the most oppressive being straight white men so we now must die first you know and like uh well just for my own personal self-interest i'm going to call that out and say i don't like the trajectory of things and for the record if it were black gay men that were at the top of that hierarchy of needing to be put down, I would say, this is evil. What are you doing? Because it's evil to ever do something like that. And it doesn't have anything to do with my self-interest. It's just fucked up and you guys have lost your minds. So yeah, I'm going to call it cultural Marxism. And if it fucking offends you, then think about what you're doing or have a debate with me publicly and I'll fucking own you. How about that? <laughs> we are both fired up about these topics. I love it. Before we wrap up the episode, Clint, why is it important for you Dave Smith, people like myself and others to maintain, despite our passion, despite our convictions, why is it so important to maintain that we are anti-violence? Yeah. Well, and this is why I like to fuck people up in debates because I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to hurt people. Um, I, I think, I mean, other than the moral justification that like hurting peaceful people is 
not a good thing to do. Um, I think that also tactically it's foolish. I think that that it empowers the state because if you're hurting otherwise peaceful people, those peaceful people that are are unable to best you in that battle will turn to the state and say, I need laws to protect me. The laws ultimately empower the state. The state has a mon- monopoly on violence. And ultimately, they don't give a fuck about helping those people. But as soon as they're granted additional powers to go after the alleged uh, assailant, well, then you now have a more powerful state with a uh, basically the the support of the downtrodden, the person who's being uh, you know violated, to use whatever violence necessary to to put that down. And and the you know the uh, analogy that I would I would bring up to explain what I'm talking about is January sixth. I think that. They made a huge mistake, even though it was catalyzed. And before your conservative listeners get pissed off at me, um, it was catalyzed by the Capitol Police flashbanging and and uh, ultimately instigating that that riot. Um, <clears throat> but it was still a mistake. It was still a mistake to to bite because that's what they wanted. They wanted to to roll out. Uh, they wanted to take the the foreign war on terror, and they wanted to make it domestic, and they did so. And they did so with the catalyst of January 6th. And this is why people like Alex Jones, as soon as they saw it start to get out of hand, ran the fucking other direction because they knew what was up uh, because they've been around this game long enough to know, like, if you get violent with the state, it just empowers the state and you ultimately don't get what you want. And I think that's why um, not just morally, but tactically, uh, you know, maintaining a peaceful perspective unless you're being aggressed upon unless you have to defend yourself is ultimately the only pathway forward. I love it. Very well put. Clint, thank you very much for your time. If someone wants to listen, of course, Liberty Lockdown. How else can they follow your material? Uh, at Liberty Lockpot on Twitter. Get on board. Uh, Liberty Lockdown pretty much everywhere else. Or Clint Russell, that's R-U-S-S-E-L-L. And uh, my YouTube is up. But uh, because I've been <laughs> toyed with so much, I would love it if you are a Rumble user uh, please do go subscribe over on Rumble to Liberty Lockdown or search Clint Russell. Either way, it should come up. And uh, thank you so much for having me, Kelly, and keep up the fight, brother. Great stuff, Clint. Thank you very much.